Mobbed by reporters, flanked by police officers and wearing a smart blue suit with a red tie, Patrick Zaki gives a thumbs up and a broad smile to the cameras as he is taken to a car waiting outside Malpensa Airport in Italy. Smiling once more, he tells the journalists, see you in Bologna. The return of Patrick Zaki to Egypt on July 23rd was welcome news and a rare win for human rights defenders in Egypt. It also shone a light on the abuses that have happened in Egypt. This week, why was Patrick Zaki pardoned by Egypt's president? What does his release mean for human rights in the country? And can the national dialogue help steer the nation away from authoritarian rule and back to democracy? I'm Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. Patrick George Zaki, an Egyptian postgraduate student at the University of Bologna, was arrested at Cairo Airport on February 7th, 2020. He had recently returned from a trip to Italy, where he had been visiting his family. During his interrogation, Zaki was questioned about his work for the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, a human rights organisation. At the time of his arrest, his lawyers reported that Zaki had been blindfolded and handcuffed throughout his 17-hour interrogation, first at the airport and then at an undisclosed location. Furthermore, he was allegedly subjected to beatings and electric shocks. It was later announced that he was being held for, quote, disseminating false news and, quote, inciting to protest, charges that stem from an article he wrote about the plight of Egypt's Coptic Christian minority to which Zaki belongs. His pre-trial detention was repeatedly extended in the years that followed. At one of his hearings, his colleague at the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, Lobna Dewish, spoke to a reporter. There's a general anger among us all. There is an extended detention now, nearly two years actually, without a trial and without real investigations. Even when the trial started, it's adjourned for two and a half months, with him still in detention. He could be, according to the law, released pending investigations with all these procedures going on normally. On December 9th, 2021, Patrick was released from prison, in part due to international pressure, but the charges were not dropped. His court date was set for April 6th, 2022, which was then delayed multiple times. On July 18th of this year, Zaki's court trial finally went ahead and the human rights activist was found guilty by a military court and sentenced to three years in prison. With news of his sentencing, the executive director at the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights said, Patrick was prosecuted and convicted solely on the basis of one opinion article he published four years ago uh, about his a week in his life as a Coptic Christian in Egypt. This is a regime uh, that tells the world uh, that um, it has been the best ever in the history of Egypt uh, for the rights of Coptic Christians. Yet here we have a human rights defender recounting a week in his life as a Coptic Christian and being prosecuted and convicted for it by an emergency state security court. 
One day later, on July 19th, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi pardoned Zaki. He was then released. On July 20th, Zaki spoke with a reporter from Reuters. Um, it was a surprise. I tried to react with it, but now I'm free. Uh, freedom is a very important thing. Freedom is uh, really priceless. Uh, so I'm now uh, relaxed and relieved and uh, thinking positively for the upcoming days. News of Patrick Zaki's release will be welcomed by many. But sadly, it's not the norm. A lengthy prison sentence is, more often than not, the outcome of such cases in Egypt. So why was Patrick freed? I think he was pardoned because the three-year sentence was a shock. Uh, it was totally unexpected. He's already spent two years in prison. This is Dr. Aida Saif Eldawa. I am a retired professor of psychiatry at Ain Shams University in Cairo. And I am one of four founders of the Nadim Center for the Rehabilitation of Victims of Violence and Torture, an Egyptian independent NGO founded in 1993. He is a popular young person. His friends have, and his organization has campaigned well for him. His colleagues in uh, the University of Bologna campaigned very strongly for him. So he became an international figure with local and international support. Since his initial arrest, many international voices have spoken out against the detention of Patrick Zaki and called for his immediate release. In the regime's cost-benefit analysis, continuing to hold him would have probably been more trouble than it's worth. There was no interest in seeing this guy go to prison for any longer. This is Miret Mabruk, a senior fellow and the director of the Egypt and Horn of Africa programme at the Middle East Institute. And you want to bear in mind that the, you know, so I, I think it was on the table that he was going to be found guilty by this, by the military court, because, you know, that, that's what it was. But because of the the nature of that ruling, because it's military, there is no appeal. And the only person who can pardon him is the president. And it was on the books of the president pardon him so that they can close up the file and have him uh, sent back to, to, to Italy. So that was, I mean... That was on the books. Despite the relief brought by his release, Patrick is just one detainee. One of an estimated 60,000 political prisoners held in Egypt. Dr. Ida again. It is a daily concern, and not only the civil and political rights, but also the economic rights, the right to safety. It is a daily concern, an extreme daily concern. It is not true that Egyptians are not speaking out. Otherwise, how could you explain the 60,000-plus prisoners that have been detained and arrested and continue to be detained and arrested every single day? Egypt has created a formidable police state, able to preempt any form of dissent and nip it in the bud. Because the government is terrified of organisation. It has, it has constrained organisations, independent organisations, foremost human rights organisations, it has constrained trade union organizations and dissolved many of them. Parties are working under very restrictive conditions and many party members from the coalition that calls itself the Democratic Civil Coalition Movement have been arrested. Some continue to be in detention, not to mention anybody who has a close or distant relationship to any Islamist, Islamic organization. 
even people, for example, who get evicted from places, from their homes or from their neighborhoods to build a bridge or to whatever, to do one of those major projects that the regime is so keen on, they get arrested. Worker strikes are raided by police and uh, workers are arrested. So this en masse movement is immediately stopped and obstructed and harassed and persecuted by security. The security services enforcing this oppression are instructed to systematically target civil society organisations, to stop groups organising and interfere with their efforts to create networks. But what about the role of the international community? Patrick's case received a fair amount of international attention, particularly in Europe, given his Italian ties. David Sassoli, the president of the European Parliament, tabled two parliamentary inquiries. Italian members of the European Parliament petitioned the Italian ambassador in Cairo. Even Hollywood star Scarlett Johansson publicly called for his release. On the world stage, Egypt's appalling human rights record is no secret. The world is all too aware of the political opponents and human rights defenders being detained, and the torture that takes place behind the walls of Egypt's prisons. But for many powerful foreign nations, President of Egypt, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, is a useful man to have in Cairo. Uh, Sisi promises, sells the idea of fighting terrorism. The international community has decided to believe this since Sisi has actually adopted this goal that has been put forward by the international community. He promises Europe to prevent migration to Europe and to police the uh, Egyptian borders, which is high on the the agenda of the international and especially the European uh, community. Terrorism and migration control from Africa are both valuable traits for Europe. He also serves European interests in the regional diplomatic spheres, particularly in negotiations between the Israeli occupation and the occupied Palestinians. Sisi is also profitable. And he is buying weapons. We don't know why he is buying all those weapons, but he is buying weapons, which uh, the money of which feeds into the economy of whatever country sells him these weapons. He buys spyware to control dissidents in, uh, in Egypt. Again, money. When you learn that Egypt is the world's third importer of weapons, this should give you some idea why foreign governments like to stick with Sisi. Egypt is the second biggest importer of French arms. In 2015, Egypt spent $5.8 billion on French fighter jets. And in 2021, they bought another 30 jets for $4.5 billion. Both of those deals were financed by loans from the French government and French banks. Of the $10.6 billion worth of arms that Germany exported in 2021, a staggering 45% went to Egypt. Egypt is also the second largest importer of Italian arms. The numbers are vast. But in spite of this, Moret does not believe that it also buys the cooperation of Egypt when it comes to human rights. Every now and again, I will read something that says, well, you know, thanks to international pressure, this person was released... Egypt does not uh, um, 
does not take into account international press, uh, pressure when releasing uh, uh, in human rights cases. It just doesn't. Okay, that's not a good thing, by by the way, uh, because you should always listen to your allies and partners. International pressure doesn't work. Egypt tends to do things for its own reasons. Even if Egypt's rulers will not bow to outside pressure, they are not immune to the pressure from within the country. So back about a year ago, there was a presidential iftar and various people were invited, various members of the opposition, um, Egypt's um, much depleted, but still more or less on its legs uh, opposition. And the president had mentioned that the country needed a national dialogue. Uh, the national dialogue is essentially because people were being faced with the fact that there really wasn't a political plurality in Egypt, that opposition parties such as they were, were being squeezed out of the debate. I mean, if you look at the makeup of parliament, it is mostly uh, a couple of parties that are uh, deeply loyal to the government and the regime. Announced in 2022, but delayed for over a year, the so-called National Dialogue has been tasked with discussing political, economic and social issues in Egypt. These issues have been broken down further for subcommittees to examine. These include the status of political parties, election laws, municipal elections, human rights, debt levels, the budget deficit, inflation and rising prices, education and scientific research, health, population issues, family law, culture and national identity, to name but a few. When the dialogue was first announced, opinion was, according to Moret, split. There was, I think, equal parts of optimism and cynicism. Optimism because people were delighted to hear that they might be given a chance to speak. But the cynicism was because a lot of people felt, including actually the people who were optimistic, uh, a lot of it was felt that honestly this was a bit of a fig leaf and that you would just be given the opportunity to come and talk and, um, and leave and very little would change. Dr Ida would likely label herself as one of those cynics. We are not talking about an innovative idea that, suddenly appeared and lighted the conscience of somebody who does not care about the people by whom he supposedly he was elected. Before that national dialogue, there was the so-called national strategy for human rights. It didn't change anything. And then there was this iftar for the Egyptian family. There is no Egyptian family. There is an Egyptian clique that is ruling and controlling this country. It's a piece of theatre. It's a bad piece of theatre. The problem with that national dialogue is that it split. There were groups and yani the, some of the participants, they would participate in anything. But it also split parties. It splits human rights activists between those who thought, believed that if they participate in that dialogue, they are going to speed up the uh, the release of detainees. And between those who consider this just another attempt to beautify the image of Sisi before the 2024 elections. Given the regime's well-documented history of repression, cronyism and corruption, cynicism is probably a fair response. So what does the regime hope to achieve from all of this? 
it's not really sure what the what the state wanted to achieve. Uh, the, the the stated goal of the state was that it wanted to open up the field to opposition parties so that it could hear what everyone wanted to say and so that we could uh, encourage political plurality in Egypt. The opposition, before they sat down, had some demands. They said, well, we want to feel that you're being serious, so uh, we would like the equivalent of a proof of life in a kidnapping, if you like. We, we would like you to, let's say, release some prisoners because one of our, the biggest problems with the opposition was members of the opposition are routinely being arrested and detained. And I said, we can't, in all good faith, we can't sit at the same table unless we have a release of political prisoners. And they were told, OK, we can uh, we can work on that. And work on it they did. In April 2022, the same month that the president announced the national dialogue, an Egyptian pardon committee was re-established. The Geneva-based human rights organisation Committee for Justice documented the release of 754 detainees in cases related to freedom of conscience. Ten had their sentences pardoned, the remaining 744 were released from pre-trial detention. On the surface, this is a positive development. In truth, it's a fig leaf. In the years since the reactivation of the Egyptian Pardon Committee, 3,250 people have been arrested. More than three times the number that were released. Some have been arrested for the first time, while others are those who were initially released and then re-arrested. There was no change in actual policy. For example, the thousands of people who are held in pre-trial detention, some people are being held in pre-trial detention for the past 10 years. 10 years they are in prison. They are not being brought to trial after the two years dictated by the law to, to define pre-trial detention, they are being put on a new case while they are in prison. For example, like Anas al-Baltagi, whose only crime is the city that he is the son of the Muslim Brotherhood leader Muhammad al-Baltagi. He's been in prison since 2013 in solitary for no reason except that he is his father's son. Those thousands of people in pre-trial detention, all they needed was a decision a political will to release all political prisoners who've been in pre-trial detention for over two years. This needed a signature from LCC. It never happened. It never happened. Until today, it never happened. The failure of the regime to show good faith by releasing political prisoners was obviously a pretty serious hindrance to meaningful progress. And yet they have managed to begin albeit much delayed. But now that they have started, the limitations of the national dialogue are also beginning to present themselves. What you're seeing now is not so much a dialogue as a forum, in the sense that originally the people taking part had been told that there would be about 30 people taking part so that you could put forward arguments and, and have discussions and stuff. What they're finding is there are about 60 to 70 people taking part. So you can have discussions that go on for six and seven hours, and they're not actually even discussions. They're more 
small speeches for a few minutes to put forward a point of view and then you move on to the next one because if you've got 70 people speaking you know it's 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 problematic ahead of the national dialogue it was said that the sessions would be broadcast live this did not transpire and instead an edited version of events are being presented to the general public if the national dialogue can work through its limitations and make some recommendations then they will only ever be that recommendations if whatever recommendations were made by the opposition blocks are put on the table if they do not fit into what the government feels is appropriate at the moment nothing is going to happen all right it's i mean the situation at the moment is actually it's quite delicate it's difficult and it's it's quite delicate this is not going to be the case where they are going to where the government is going to throw the doors open and you know throw it open to a big public debate they're, they're scrambling on what they're doing now it might be easy to put these problems down to poor planning or an ill-conceived execution but the truth is likely more complicated for the ruling regime in spite of all their power there is a real concern about a potential pandora's box that they might have opened i don't think it's a case for this is an attempt to prevent change because you want to bear in mind that the change that will come about will be the change that the regime feels that it can deal with so um, there are always going to be limitations if this uh, national dialogue had been held three years ago you might actually have had a little bit more openness but at the moment with the current economic situation in Egypt and with all the accompanying stress and anxiety and hardship there are going to be people that are worried that if you open up the the, the political discussion too much it is going to spin out of control there will be too many demands and remember that there will be um people in, in the security forces who uh, to whom 2011 is very 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 fresh and they won't want to repeat of that so uh, i think they are proceeding with an enormous amount of caution. Many people in power in Egypt are in those positions because of what's happened in 2011 and in the years that followed. They all saw a strong and long-lasting regime brittily crumble and fall under the weight of public anger. After 2011, there has been a constant fear of more mass protests. 2011 took everyone by surprise. And there are, you know, I'm sure the security forces just never want to be taken by surprise again. And they are very conscious that economic stability, economic stability and prosperity is in, inextricably linked to uh, uh, political stability. And the worse the situation gets, the more worried they are likely to be. I think the government is acutely aware that they're in the middle of a very, very delicate balancing act give too much and they're going to fear that they're not going to be able to control the populace don't give enough and they're going to fear that the populace is going to take matters into their own hands there is every chance that such a fear combined with chronic problems particularly the economic crisis will drive the regime to make some concessions to diffuse popular anger but likely only small concessions I mean, they have discussed education reform. 
and they have discussed uh, judicial oversight on uh, elections. And my guess that, that, you know, there will be reforms on that. I mean, the, the government is going to look for low-lying fruit, low-hanging fruit, and uh, we'll, we'll give them uh, wins on that, um, but not on the big things. I, I, you know, if you want to be cynical, you can say they never intended to. And if you want it to be practical, I'm going to think that they would be too worried to do anything even remotely adventurous at the moment. For opposition members in Egypt, the prospect of the national dialogue presents a difficult dilemma. Knowing that their initial demands for the release of political prisoners have not been met, and that any outcome from the national dialogue will have to ultimately be approved by President Sisi, do they decide to take part? It is an old argument. You can say, right, we're not going to take part. We refuse to take part. We refuse to uh, qualify or validate this. We're not We're not doing it. You can, but then you get nothing. And then you can take part and say, well, are we being used? Um, uh, you know, are we really going to get results? Well, you don't know. But I think the, the feeling was it is much better to try and get some of what we want, because you want to remember there have been people released, okay? And every person being released is a win, okay? It's not as good as everyone who should have been released being released. That, that goes without saying, there, you know. But um, But on the other hand, it would be difficult to argue the point that the releases are irrelevant and not about they are massively relevant to the people being released and their families. I'm not involved and I'm sitting here and I can tell you right now they are not going to get everything they want, but they will get some. And the question is, is it better to get some or is it better to get nothing? And I think the, the prevailing view is at the moment, it is better to get something and keep working on that. Dr. Ida differs with her opinion. My personal opinion, which I shared with several colleagues in the human rights community, is that the participation was wrong. They were in a position, Sisi would not have called for this national dialogue if he did not need that dialogue. It was not a, the, a moment of democratic enlightenment. Okay, He needed this dialogue. So I think that was a moment of concern on his side and a, mo a moment that could have been a moment of strength for opposition parties and for human rights activists to put their conditions. The mere expression to condition their participation was condemned by, by several of the participants as we do not condition the government. I don't know why we don't condition the government. I mean, it is governing and it is governing us. So we have the right to at least express our conditions to be governed. And there are some uh, members of the of the opposition parties who started with a list of 30 people, demanded the release of 30 people as condition for participation. And then the, 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 um, the list was reduced, 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 down to one person. For Dr. Ida, the decision by the opposition to take part in the national dialogue without ensuring conditions were met represents a missed opportunity. I think that we had a, a moment where we could have said, no, we are not going to participate. We need, we, need, we need an indicator of good intent. Okay, And this indicator of good intent is to release people in pretrial detention, to release people who are in dire medical uh, conditions, 
lacking medical care, to release children, to pardon people who have been sentenced and who have already spent more than half or two thirds of their sentence. We were entitled, had we been united and unified our this demand, that the state prove its good intentions and, and do some of those things, which did not happen. Some people have been released, true, some people have been released, but triple the number of people who have been released have been detained during the same period. Something will come from the National Dialogue. Probably something good, although also probably not a lot. But the fact that the normally uncompromising regime has started the National Dialogue is an indication of the clear understanding that something needs to happen, particularly with presidential elections scheduled for 2024. The situation in Egypt is dire. Egyptians are facing real struggles on a day-to-day basis. And the looming threat that the state may arrest you on any number of bogus charges at any moment adds an existential kind of struggle into the mix. The story starts with Patrick Zaki. It should end when all political prisoners in Egypt are freed. A decision that can only be taken by the de facto dictator of the country, President Sisi. I think he overstepped. I think people, even dictators, seek to to establish some kind of balance, you know, kind of bribe their people with something, you know, I mean, deprive them of democracy and human rights in exchange of livelihood, survival. But he has driven the country to a dangerous situation where there is neither nor. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.